You're listening to Faro D. Coming at you live. Best which way, what, when, how? Mr. Otto D. Flip the track right now. Hey, I'm Otto D. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to listen to some great music and talk to some really cool people. And I know there's a lot of things you could be doing, so I appreciate that you're getting with this. Hey everybody, I am your host, Otto Daniolo, and tonight my guest is Michael Beck. Michael's a producer and an audio engineer, a singer, and he fronts a tribute band. Wait, that sounds a lot like me. And he also owns a studio, Sound Vision Recording Studios in Mesa, Arizona. And he'll be with us right after this John Lennon tune called I'm Losing You.
And that was I'm Losing You by John Lennon here on the Auto D Show, which is brought to you by Verma Boils Productions, which handles all things Auto D, including this show and the launch of my new John Lennon show this coming Saturday at Desert View Performing Arts Center in Tucson, Arizona, which I'm looking forward to. You can get tickets at becominglennon.com while they last. And as I mentioned, tonight's guest is a kindred spirit of mine with a professional path that kind of mirrors my own in a lot of ways, Mr. Michael Beck. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Otto. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, man, it's great having you here. You're a studio guy, engineer guy like me. True. Producer guy. Guilty as charged. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And you front a tribute show. Which I, I, I want to talk to you about. That's pretty cool. I'm following in your footsteps. I, I, don't, know know, I don't know if you're following, because <laughs> it looks to me like you've also spent a bit of time on the radio a number of years ago. I did. Sounds like I'm following in your footsteps. Uh, I, yeah, they probably intertwine every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> well, where did this whole musical story start for you? Where did you originally come from? Kiss. Kiss. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. I was kind of thinking that. I kind of had another thought. That's interesting. So let's just go there. That band, you yeah. were young, you heard a Kiss record. What's, what was, song in particular? What, eight. Okay. Yeah, probably eight. I, I mean, I, I always had an ear for music. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I, I mean, I remember really distinctly, Feeling Groovy was my favorite song when I was oh, wow. like three. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 <laughs> feeling <laughs> a, Groovy. What a happy I remember that song. Um, but Kiss brought it, and, you know, I'm in the legions of people that this, the same story. Mm-hmm. That um, I got the single for uh, Beth, mm-hmm. and on the back side was Detroit Rock City. Right. Oh man! I mean, I never heard anything like that. Right. It blew my mind. Yeah, I remember Detroit Rock City being pretty incredible. It the first that, time I heard that. It just blew my mind, and then I went and got Kiss Alive mm-hmm. and further blown (laughs) it it just it just wrapped around me so we're saying you were about eight years old yeah when this went down were you a musician at that point in your life it was it was probably 10 10. were you playing yet or no uh i was playing a little guitar i was mostly you know strumming guitar to to look cool to girls right that's where we all start that's right um but um I, I don't know. Kiss just brought it all together for me because it, it, for some <laughs> weird reason, it, uh, it it just I don't know why, but it, all of a sudden playing music seemed possible. Mm-hmm. I I related to the songs. I related to the the you know the show part of it. Mm-hmm. It just I don't know. Well, it was very comic book too. From compared totally. to their you know their more contemporaries. than a yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think for a ten year old. Very it's much like, so. It was like something you could totally relate to. Uh, and that's probably true. It was Superman and Batman and Robin and the whole That's absolutely probably crowd. true. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, I mean, it totally engulfed my world to the point where I don't really think I listened to anything else to any, um, you know, for any more amount of time. Right. Uh, till I was probably 12 or 13. Okay. So how old were you when you started breathing fire? <laughs> you know, but I did have a friend that did it, and I was blown away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine a lot of kids tried and failed. Oh, yeah. uh, that, that was a crazy thing that they yeah. used to do. Uh, that's not, that wouldn't have been you know, my thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something I don't think I've ever shared uh, publicly. Uh-oh. But uh, <laughs> I was in a band that did a full kiss set in full makeup. Really? The whole nine yards. And uh, one of our first gigs was at a Catholic high school where I had gone to the first two <laughs> I love years of high school. So I'd left that school. I graduated from a public school, but that my senior year, they asked me to bring my band down to play at the school. So we, you know, we were taking forever to put our makeup on because we take this ha- little break, you know, in the middle to get ready. <laughs> the first set's just us. So we come back out. We have homemade flash pots that are just two by fours with little dips cut out and flash powder and gunpowder. We just plug them right into the wall, you know, short out the fire. And, Little wire, make them blow out. Boom! And yeah, can lights and all the makeup, and we had a little siren lights that would go around because our oh, bass yeah. player's dad was a state trooper, so we got some red <laughs> lights and put on our PA. So we do this set afterwards. We're all done. We're tearing down, and I'm walking out, and here's my science teacher from a couple years earlier, and he looked at me like I was some other kind of human being he'd never seen before. Instead Satan? of saying, "Hey, it's good to see you," <laughs> yeah, maybe. But it was like instead of instead of it's nice to see you, good to see you have a band. You know, it's a little much for me. He just kind of stared at me and just shook his head, and it's like it was just the funniest feeling. You know, I am also a product of Catholic school. 
Oh, are you? Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're right. Our lives do intertwine. But <laughs> I, I had a stage set up in my basement. Right. Didn't know how to play the instruments, but we rocked the hell out of a tennis racket and an oh, yeah. air guitar. And we put on a show. You yeah. put on Kiss Alive, and we did all the moves, and we charged kids to come down and look at it. Yeah, we used to do all that stuff, too. You know, this before MTV and before, you know, the, <laughs> exactly. the software games Rock Hero or Guitar Hero, you know, and all of that stuff. Uh, we really made them. I remember making guitars out of cereal boxes and stuff, <laughs> painting them and everything, you know. It was a big deal. Uh, it, it was the best thing about it is you knew what you were going to be for Halloween. There was no yeah. decision making. And so. beyond that, once you actually had your guitar and played in front of girls, as you mentioned, yes. then you knew what you were going to do for the rest of your life. That's it's exactly like, true. You're going to play rock and roll. I remember my first gig very well. Tell me about it. It was a band called Witchcraft. Okay. Um, my st- my best friend to this day. He uh, was the best man at my wedding. Greg Holman uh, was bass player and. We put this band together, and and it was at a VFW hall mm-hmm. in what was it Raymond, Nebraska, or some some place where you kind of out in the sticks. Okay, and you know it's a VFW hall. This thing probably holds. How many of those have you set on fire? Uh, as many as possible. <laughs> and this one was, uh, you know, I mean, usually those, you know, they'll hold 150 people. Yeah, there was, I, 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 you couldn't move. It was mm-hmm. sardines in mm-hmm. there, and. I was very nervous, and I was a little freaked out, mm-hmm. and Greg kind of gave me the pep talk, and you can do this, you can do this, and I went out, and I just stared above everybody's heads while we played, you know, High and Dry from Def Leppard, and right. I don't know from Ozzy. Because you were the lead singer in that band, I'm assuming, because that's kind I of wasn't. been your role. Oh, okay. What I were you? Was What were you in that band? I started out as a guitar player. Okay. And... um Greg actually did a lot of the vocals, but Greg was the bass player, and he's actually a, a great songwriter and a, and a really good singer now. But back then, whenever he wasn't playing, he would stay on the mic and go, mm. <laughs> and everybody used to wonder, where's that hum coming from? Well, it's 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 Greg, and he didn't know he was doing it. Right. So you'd go, where's that hum coming from? And it would stop, and he'd go, I don't know. <laughs> Because he'd start listening for the hum, and we it. had a uh, we had a really good guitar player um, who later on wound up uh, Kevin Danzig mm-hmm. being in Imagine a band that. called Size Thirteen. Okay, that had a, a hit called Claire Danes years later. Hmm. Oddly enough, anyway, Oddly enough. Um, he was really good. Eddie Van Halen clone, right? So I was a rhythm guitar player, okay. and we had a really good guitar player. And Greg didn't sing all that well, but he played bass. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if it was because I wasn't a good guitar player or mm-hmm. if because I was a better singer. But every song that came up, it was, well, let's let Michael sing this one. Interesting. So when when you started to sing, was it in Witchcraft where you started? Did you ever front that band mm-hmm. without being a guitar player? Yeah. So initially you started in that band as a guitarist and kind of right. morphed. How, morphed. How did you find uh, the first few times you weren't wearing a guitar? Did that was that a freaky experience to no. stand there with nothing between you and the audience, or no. it was even better? It kind of was. Cool. It kind of was. It can be weird for people. I, I, I and I could see that, but it, it, I, it, it didn't bother me in the least. Yeah. And, and I remember that. I, I remember that gig so well because I remember being really freaked out and, like I said, looking every above everybody's right. heads and at the back wall, and then I kind of caught somebody's eye in the right. front row, right. and they were really into it. And I don't think I ever looked above anybody's head after that. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, it, 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 it hit me pretty hard. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome, man. And so uh, that was in Nebraska. How it long were you, or let me ask you, how old were you when you left Nebraska? We moved here in 94. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was in a band back there, kind of a, a local super group. Mm-hmm. For lack of a better term, right. you know, all the other guys had been in, you know, semi-successful bands, and I had two. And because uh, when you were back there, you you were signed as yeah. an as an artist with bands couple while times. you were in Nebraska, couple times, yeah, and uh, worked worked out well. I mean, all the other guys had been, like I say, in in you know, well drawing bands. Mm-hmm. So when we got together, it, it was a it was a quick rise. There was a lot of a bu- of buzz going on. It was a band called Chronic. Mm-hmm. And kind of, kind of King's X meets uh, Soundgarden mm-hmm. type 
really good band. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was 94. Okay. And uh, we were, we had, uh, you know, management in Los Angeles and none of us wanted to move there. Right. But we all agreed to move here. And I'm the only one that made it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, I'm sure it's not, I, I don't have the... Uh, uh, an exclusive on that story i'm sure right right okay so um let me t- ask you a little bit about the bands you were in that did get signed when what was the first band that had a recording deal manila thrills and how old were you when that happened uh 22 so i mean were you guys like is that what was the label i was a small label called dune records okay so it was a local deal uh it was a regional okay um but we did our record with uh, a guy who has uh, kind of been my mentor through the years as mm-hmm. far as, you know, the other side of the glass, a guy named Tom Tapman. He had just done the Tora Tora record. <laughs> okay. So um, he just did Stone Sour's record not too long ago, okay. so he's still doing it. Um, but it was my first real record, mm-hmm. you know, real studio, real How everything. did you get it? It had to be something, man, going home and telling your parents you've got a deal and you're going to make a record. And what was in, what did you think with the future held Going in that first time, you know, what did you think was next? Uh, you know, I, I've always been and still am really career driven or mm-hmm. driven in general. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I I didn't, I never relished things. You didn't have any, these illusions were never destroyed because you never held them. You were still just racing ahead. No I was what. racing. I, I really was. Yeah. I, I, it was always, I never... You know, and, and, you know, everybody's got a little regret. I wish I would have enjoyed the things that were in front of me a little bit more. Right. Um, but I was always racing for the next thing. And I am kind of still that way. Right. Um, but, you know, you use what you got. And I use that to, I use it as being a producer, too. I, sure. I use it to, to, you know, the next thing. Mm-hmm. I'm continually looking for it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and um, did you have some uh, radio success with with either of those deals? Uh, with Manila Thrills, you know, it was a different time. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you start out as a cover band, you're playing, you know, five six nights a week. But we toured for four years, on and wow. off. I mean, and this is this is van touring or bus touring. This is van touring, fo- and then we got to a, the point where we were following a bus, but <laughs> it was still in the van. <laughs> And, uh, but we had management and, you know, it was going uh-huh. well and, mm-hmm. uh, Scary Harry was kind of the same thing. Um, Chronic was kind of the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. all of them had, you know, deals of, of some magnitude right, or another. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, Scary Harry was that, uh, that was, uh, at Co Records, I think. And, Correct. Yeah. And then you were on another group, uh, with MCA called Leather Wolf. Yeah, Leather Wolf um, was actually a, a band that was popular um, in the 80s. Um, very popular. They toured with Metallica and the Scorpions. And mm-hmm. um, I was with them for a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> they, they were doing like a resurgence in, I think, like 2001, 2002. Okay. And their original singer wasn't going to be part of it. So I was, and we were working you know, on making that happen and, and uh, we're starting to work on the record and then they got their original singer back and, you know, mm-hmm. you make more money that way. So I get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, before we go on to some of these other aspects of your, your professional career besides performing, let's just play a little something from one of your bands. Cool. So um, I want to check out a cut from Scary Harry. Wow. So tell me a little bit about show, place, or when. Uh, it's on the record. It's, uh, the record is called intent to deliver. This probably came out in <laughs> rock and roll titles. Absolutely. Uh, Do you see my fist? Well, there, there's a, there's a hidden meaning in there. Of course. So. Um, it, um, but it, it originally came out or didn't come out or attempted to come out in 93. Okay. Uh, so it was right before I moved here. 92 probably. Yeah. 92. Um, Really good band, good band. And on yeah. this track, you're are you a songwriter on this track? Yeah, it, most of the stuff that, almost all the stuff that I've been in as far as a band, I've always been the 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 lyricist, melody writer. Okay, it's always kind of been my role. I've taken it pretty seriously. So, all right, 
Well, let's hear uh, Michael Beck fronting his band from 1992 called Scary Harry with a cut show, place, or win. Yahoo. <laughs>
an awesome track. Showplacer wins. Scary Harry with Michael Beck. I actually haven't heard that in a long time. That was cool. Here on the Auto D Show. Well, check it out. It's like the double kick drum patterns. I mean, these guys, drummers really worked out on in that style in that day. Yes. It was a lot of work. Yes. And you have that classic scream with the big vibrato on it. What? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let me just let me shut off this other YouTube video that's playing. We don't need that. But uh, that scream was like, I could never have done that, you know. <laughs> and in the rock bands I was in, it's kind of like, okay, I think we'll just look over here at the pop bands and see what's going on. But uh, that that's really classic and awesome. Which actually brings me to um, your your tribute show. Yeah, your tribute show is a Deep Purple tribute band. Deep Purple, and yeah, you want to talk about a rock singer. I mean, oh. anybody who's going to try and do Ian Gillian, <laughs> yeah, he's got to he's got to be able to get up there. And so hearing that, you know, it's like, oh, okay, this guy can do. That. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what that experience has been like for you. Uh, Fireball's been great. Um, it, it's uh, you know, it, Deep Purple is one of those bands um, that even when I I got the the gig, you know, you, you kind of go through in your head. You know, you're auditioning with three or four songs, and then you're 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 putting together the set list. Right. Well, you know, how many Deep Purple songs do you know? And they're one of those bands that, God, there's more than you think. Right. There's there's actually wow. I know, yeah, I know that one. I, mm-hmm. I I know that one too. Right. There's quite a few of them, mm-hmm. and um, you know, if I sound anything like him, then cool. <laughs> well, he was pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, as far as you know, classic rock singer. Absolutely. Kind I mean, of solidified it. Yeah, for me, I was always like Robin Zander. I always loved Robin's voice. Uh, and he's one of those guys who every time he's singing, I'm, I'm willing to bet money he's going to die during this song. You know, <laughs> and this is the one you can see it in his neck. He always like seems to give everything, and they're still doing it. You know, And Ian was one of those guys where you're like, that, that can't last. His head's going to pop. He just had nothing but power. And... Yeah, total power. That, yeah. that that's where the power. I mean, even more so than Plant. Plant right. had that that uh, and, car- and incredible character. Yeah, but yeah, but Ian was just like a trumpet. For he a rock was singer. just a, a power singer. Yeah, yeah. No Iron Maiden without Ian Gillen for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll tell you, I, I have a deep purple story, kind of. I suppose they owned E G. Hey, they stole that from every guitar player <laughs> when they wrote Smoke on the Water, right? And you never heard that again. You never heard that. And I thought about, this would have been about 2010. I thought, well, that's not right. <laughs> In fact, it's so wrong. I, so I took it back and I actually wrote a song on a record of mine. All because I wanted to play E G A, and then put a different melody after it, to, to, so that if you heard my song for a while, those three chords would never remind you of "Smoke on the Water" again. And I don't know if it worked, but it worked for me. I'm sure Blackmore would take all the credit for that, without question. Probably, probably. <laughs> have you guys got a gig coming up with that band? We do. Uh, we have one, uh, not this coming Friday, but the Friday after. Uh, what is that? The twelfth. Okay. I think. This Whatever Saturday week. is the 16th. The oh, 22nd? Yeah. Yeah, my dates are all screwed up. So April 22nd, uh, it's at Cactus Jacks in Ahwatukee. Okay. Um, with, and this is the cool part, we've tried to put this lineup together for a while, and it just finally happened, with uh, Supernatural, who is a Santana tribute. Okay. So, cool night. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, that'll be a That's good That's a really cool venue for those shows. I remember yeah, that yeah. place before, you know, way back. It's really changed a lot, but it's a very cool spot. Cool stage now, good PA. Um, we've played there once before, um, but it's been a little while, so this is our first time kind of back on the east side of things for a while. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it should be good. Cool. That'll be great. So let's talk about some of the other things you've done in the music business besides fronting bands and, for that matter, besides the studio work. You also, uh, as we mentioned, have done stints on radio. You were the local music director and on-air personality for uh, Phoenix-based alternative rock station The Edge for a while. The Edge, yeah. Now, was that your first gig in radio? It was, Tell yeah. me a little bit about uh, that experience. Um, yeah, I just kind of fell into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um they needed a local music director. There was a, um, a guy that I knew that was doing it at the time. Um, he wasn't going to do it any longer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was in the music scene. Um, I was in a band down here. And, 
and uh, was actually just kind of getting out of that band. What so year was this? This would have been About. 99, probably okay. 2000. No, okay. no. Would have been 98. Okay. 98. Yeah. Because I was there from 98 till they closed in 2001, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah, the edge became uh, Hispanic. So <laughs> that was a, quite a shift. Yeah. But um, how was that for you in, uh, in terms of your experience? This was your first on-air gig talking on the radio. It was. Did you, did you love it or was it like, oh, um, this is okay and it wasn't for you? Or no, it was – I mean, I'll tell you the truth. It was, it was, it was easy just because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm used to having a mic in front of me, so right. that wasn't that big a deal. Um, I'm not super shy with my opinion. Mm-hmm. So, so they like that. So that was okay. Mm-hmm. And, and back then, you actually got to be a part of the show more than just read a commercial script and get true. back off. And, and that's, again, honestly, that that's why I don't do radio anymore because right. it's such a different thing yeah. now than it used to be. I got, I got in on the tail of of real radio when, mm-hmm. you know, even though it was on CD at that point, you still had to pull the discs off the wall. You still had to run your bumpers off carts. Mm-hmm. You still had to run the commercials off carts. Mm-hmm. You still did, you know, three breaks an hour. You did station ID at the quarter of the hour. I, I mean, and all that stuff is still true, except the whole pulling your own music. And, Right. I just got to the end of it where, you know, there was usually play about 12 songs in an hour. So there would be like a 16 song set mm-hmm. that you would play and you could dump, you mm-hmm. know, whatever you couldn't get to. Right. So you couldn't choose it, but you could kind of tailor it. Right. And um, then I, you know, I had my own show, which was all local music. And so that was kind of my baby that I could run on my own. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was. It was great because it was radio. You felt like you were doing something. You right. could talk up to the post. You could play the bumpers in between. You know, you could be a DJ. Right. And then once the edge closed down, I went to KDKB. Mm-hmm. Um, great station. Um, but that was the beginning of automation. Mm-hmm. And you basically sat in a glass room. I felt like a monkey because mm-hmm. you sat in a room and... You watch the screen go from song to song until the the stoplight or you know the the octagon shaped mm-hmm. red thing on the screen would start flashing, and that means that you were going to talk in thirty seconds. Right, and the mic would automatically come on, and you'd say <laughs> your thing, and you'd hit the space bar, and it'd go back to you know back flipping the through the the automated playlist. It, it was so boring. Wow, good lord, it was boring. I just couldn't do that anymore. So uh, when did you start your studio in Mesa, Arizona? In 99. Okay. So about the time you got off the radio, off radio or were you doing them both at the same I, time? I was doing bit? both at the same time. Okay. Yeah. And now you didn't have your own local show at KDKB. I did not. Okay. So did you have your studio? I'm just wondering. Yes. While you had your local show. Yes. So that had to be a really cool thing in terms it of supporting was, each other. Um, it, it, it was. It, it, it was great. I I, I tried to be... Um, not just play the bands you were working with. <laughs> well, and I really did try and adhere to that because right. that, I, 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 you know, for whatever reason, if I'm nothing else, I hope I have some sort of honor. Right. Thanks, mom and dad. Yeah. So, exactly. <laughs> um, I just felt like that would be wrong. And right. although I definitely played the bands that I produced and did, right. Um, I really didn't push them any more than other bands mm-hmm. that would you know that i was listening for Mm -hmm. um i was just really looking for good quality stuff to that fit the genre that fit the station that um and i really wanted to play stuff that was quality Mm -hmm. you know i i I hated playing a band that a had a horrible recording right because why why would you do that nobody listens to that they don't want to hear that even if it is good and I tell bands that all the time still. Why? Why? Why are you doing that? Don't do something wrong. Do it right. Even if it's not with me, do it right. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing was I always tried to base it around a band's show. So I always felt like, you know, if, if I played a track from a band and they didn't have 
a record coming out mm-hmm. or they didn't have right. a show coming up, then it was just kind of an ego stroke and it never really went anywhere. Right. It didn't serve a purpose where exactly. you were really helping them if you play exactly. when they have a show coming exactly. up. Or a record and and hopefully, you know, they'll take advantage of it the way they should and, you know, build the show around that and whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I did try and really up the game on on that end of it. Right. Yeah. So now you've had your studio for quite a while. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's a grind when you're trying to run your own studio and it do is. all the bands. And it is. You've been married now for 28 years, 28 years, coming which up is on 29. Which is an oddity in this business, and congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> With a couple kids. Uh, you have two sons. Yeah, Michael and Jacob. One uh, just got married. Yeah, Michael's uh, 28. He's uh, actually working... Uh, he was in Split the Enemy, guitar player okay. for a sp- pretty popular band in town here. Okay. And now he's working with the, uh, or he's writing, they're still trying to put stuff together, with the drummer from I Watched Her Die, the bass player from Whitechapel, and the guitar player from Asking Alexandria. Okay. So all, you know, successful bands. And right. I'm, I'm, I'm. I got my fingers crossed for him. So okay, is that is that something they're writing right now? So if it starts to come together, there'll yeah. be a new band name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So they're kind of putting that yep. together. Looking cool. for a singer right now. So <clears throat> really, <laughs> yeah, not me. <laughs> yeah. Dad and the kids out for a gig. Yeah, as long as you sing from the soundboard or we put somebody on the mic, I feel like they're singing, Dad. At they're doing the. All right, that's I, that's that's not me. So. Well, it's funny because you know every there's every level of rock. When I when I was listening to the track, we listened to the track of yours that we played earlier, "Scary Harry." Um, you know, funk slap bass line yeah. in what we would have called metal. Right. That today they wouldn't even call metal. It, it right. sounds like pop because it's because they're actually playing music. They're really playing changes. They're not just doing a four four screaming <laughs> thrashing. And so, but yet that scream by every rock style ahead of it was just screaming you yes. know and it was it's a, it was a siren of a scream and now this the the you know yeah. fire flamethrower throat scream is a whole nother <laughs> level of scream in a different way that to to that to the old school is kind of like ah that's just that but you know the next one this is just going to be candy again well and my, my my younger son jacob um is into hip-hop right he does uh he raps and sings both over beats, and right. um, but he his beats are more jazz oriented and kind of a, a interesting. You know, yeah, it, it's actually. I, I mean, I, I've actually done several rap records. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you first become an engineer, I mean, you know the deal. You you take what walks in the door, <laughs> especially if they got money. So I did several rack records. Mm-hmm. I, I did uh, Hannibal on Dre's label. I did cool. uh, Ray Mills' record on Capitol, or he he wasn't on Capitol at the time. But, right. Um, so I, I I I get it. I I understand it. Um, not probably as well as I I do some of the other genres of music, but. I just got a text message from a rap artist in Florida that I'm working with who's doing Christian rap. Oh wow! And he had a big meeting today, and he's like, "Hey, man, they really love this track." And blah blah blah. I was like, "They want to do an interview on TV." And I'm thinking, "Oh, good for you, good." Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. It's good, you know. I, it's great. But it's one of the. And this particular record is one where it's you know you you can do so much when your role is producer. You can do so much when your role yes. is engineer. You can do so much when your role is mixing engineer. And so I like it when I have all three roles because then I'm I know when I'm done I'm really happy, you know. And but when you only get one role, you're kind of like. Really, I'm supposed to mix this, and so you're like, "Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do this?" And you know, you blend the lines. I'm okay with the with the mixing stuff. I I actually like that, but being a producer for a rap record is a different thing than a producer for anything else. You know, it really is. But but being but being the producer from the standpoint of uh, you're the one responsible for this being good or cool, that because that (laughs) moniker really needs to go with the producer. True. Uh, and so you're being asked to do that with a track that's done, right? So, so, so to speak. And you're like, you know what? It's not done, right? And so, but you're done with it. So, what can I do to <laughs> yeah, it? You're Since you're not going to pay me to do it, you just want me to mix. Well, what can else can I do so that we can take this to a place where maybe it's a little more? Yeah. You know, I feel it's a little more done. 
Uh, and he was really cool about letting me do what I wanted to do to try and beef it up a little bit. And his goal was to then get some interest so that he could, you know, finance the record in a bigger way. He was doing right. it out of his pocket, you know, not a dime. So he was doing it at his house. And I was just the guy to come in and try and polish it up, you know. So uh, it can be interesting. But, you know, you brought up an interesting point when we talk about hip hop records and, and let's say rock and roll records by just uh, as a contrast in the role of the producer. <clears throat> I worked on some big rap records and it shocked me on the first one how the producer, who's the cat who made the beat and exactly. made all the music, because he essentially produced all the performances in the box, right. which is what the producer does the with MPC. musicians. Right, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But when it came time for the vocal performance, everybody left the room. And the cat's on the mic, and, right. and it's like, isn't somebody going to like help you and tell you when you're delivering and when you're not and produce your performance? And no. That's you. They do it themselves, and then they ask everybody, what do you think? And if anybody criticizes them, they get upset. And if anybody <laughs> tells them they're great, they're like, you know, screw you guys. And it's like no one produces the vocal. And I thought that was really, really strange that nobody was really producing the vocal. That was something they hadn't seen in their experience coming up the way that music came right. together. And so they didn't really understand that, I don't think. Uh, and here they are, superstars, and they've just never been in a room where their vocal was produced by another human being. They, they just do it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> And so that was that was really freaky to me, and I remember uh, jumping in, yeah, because it's like, well, <clears throat> you know what you could do. Guess what? <laughs> yeah, you know. In fact, when we're done here, I have some stories for you. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to get onto something else too. You mentioned, uh, or you didn't mention, but I wanted to mention you were A and R for Warner Brothers. I was for a while. Now, is that something you were doing while you had your studio as yes. a as an Arizona like uh, exactly in a peripheral role? Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Um. I was it was just as the edge was was turning Hispanic. <laughs> and you had just started your studio then too. Uh no, the, the studio was up in 99. I started okay. at the edge so in you're a few years, right, right. So um about 2001 is is yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a odd that was a very frustrating experience. Mm-hmm. Very frustrating. The A&R role. Yeah, cuz you're both from the band perspective and from the label perspective, it's just a man. That's a hard job, and it's a, um, you know, you got to walk the fine line between, um, between filling. Let me put it this way, and I, I you're walking a pretty doggone fine line right now. Just <laughs> explaining yourself, <laughs> I am. A lot of bands don't understand this. Right that when. When you go for a record deal and you get rejected, right. it's not always because, and it's usually not because they don't like you right. or because they don't like the music. Right. It's because you don't fit what they're looking for in the roster. Right. They're not just looking for talented bands to do a record. Right. They're looking for a very specific sound of a band right. to fill this slot in right. their roster. Right. That, that's that's nine times out of ten. That's why a band gets rejected. Of course, now that doesn't happen at all because there's only what two labels mm-hmm. now. So, right. so, but that is is um, that was part of of the problem. Is you're walking the fine line between you know you're looking for the next Lincoln Park or you're looking for the next Stone Temple Pilots. Right. And you have this band that is completely original. Well, and what the know, hell do I do with yeah, them? And you know you can't. <laughs> You love them. You want to tell them you guys are great. No, I can't. I won't even send you upstairs to the yeah. office. It's, it's, it's going to cost too much money to get you right. marketed because right. they have a marketing plan and they're just, they're literally taking you and shoving you into that marketing plan. Mm-hmm. That's what they're doing. Well, it's, that's the weird thing is it is the music business. And so yes. there's the business side yeah. that has very little to do with music. And then there's the music yes. side, which is a very little piece of the puzzle. And like you say, the machine is there running, and they have a peg, they have a hole to fill. So yep. we just need a band. We just need a particular band. And it's, but it's very specific, right? And we you know need what? This kind of band they don't even have to this... be that good because we can make them great. Yeah, exactly. We just need them to. We just, they the just hole. need to sound like this, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I had a really interesting experience. Uh, this would have been right before nine eleven, actually. The the fall, just a couple months before, I was in New York at uh, uh, Atlantic Records, and the guy who was telling me. The head of A&R, or vice president of A&R, I think was his actual title, was telling me uh, I had the next big thing. He thought I had the next big thing. He just loved it. And I'd given him like five tracks. And he was like, I just need you to do a couple things. I'm like, what? (laughs) 
He's like, you finish the record, put it out, sell 3,000 copies, and pull the sound scan reports. Then I can pitch it upstairs. And it'll sell. And I'm like, hold on. Wait, I have yeah. so many problems with what you just said. I mean, you're the vice, <laughs> no, there's not. First of all, you're the vice president, and you, and you have to pitch something? So now I already have a problem. Forget the rest of it. I'm not even talking to the right guy, I'm thinking. But that's just, even for a guy who's... He was as high as you could go without owning the freaking company, and he had no power to sign a band. Yeah. All he had was the authority to present what the board had decided was, were looking for. Exactly. And what he found in, in what I was doing wasn't what they were looking for, but if I could prove 3,000 sales in a local market, he could go, well, I know this isn't what you guys are looking for, but you know, look what they did. So right. maybe, maybe you know, if you just so maybe he would lose be. his job if they didn't right. fail because, look, the band did it, so it's not his fault. It, it was very frustrating. I, I brought them several bands that I thought would do really well and the last one that I really tried to bring them was Jimmy Eat World mm-hmm. they had just gotten off capital mm-hmm. um, or uh, yeah yeah they just gotten off capital and had a huge hit or a pretty good hit with Lucky Denver Mint right and um, capital completely dropped the ball on that record mm-hmm. and did an almost unheard of thing, which is let them out of their deal. Right. I mean, just let them walk away because they knew they screwed it up. Wow. And I tried and tried and tried to get Warners to pick it up. And like, this is a ready-made band. You keep asking for bands like this. Right. These guys are already doing it. All you're doing is changing label imprints and bank accounts. Right. I mean, that's it. Mm Mm-hmm. And they dragged their feet and DreamWorks grabbed them. And I was so freaking mad. Oh, I was pissed. And that was kind of, that's when I kind of went, you know what? If I'm going to do, if I'm going to find a band that you want me to find and you're still going to tell me no. (laughs) What what am I doing? Well, yeah, what am I doing? What am I looking for? I can't figure it out. Right. And then the, the band side of it is equally or was equally frustrating sometimes because you get, you know, you get the band that hands you a disc. Back then it was CDs. <laughs> I've, I've heard, I have some of those at home. <laughs> Several. Um, they would hand you a disc, and the first thing out of their mouth was, well, you know, we only did oh, it for I 300 know. bucks, and, it, you know, we don't really like the way it sounds. Well, why are you giving it to me? I know. Boy, I would why? go through that. I would go through that. Why are you giving me? This is only your career that you're basing this disc on, and you think I have the ability to just say yes? I got to go sell this to some people in New York. You want me to turn to them and go, well, it isn't really what they sound like. And yeah. it's, you know, they're not really happy with it, but let's sign them. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right, Michael. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they don't, they don't understand it. So you do oh. a lot of educating in the process, both as a producer, engineer, or as an A&R guy. You really do have to bring them up to speed in a sentence. It, it was, it's more frustrating. It was, a, it was more frustrating as an A&R guy because I, I felt like I was getting it from both sides. Right. I, I, would, I would have to educate the band, which is fine. I mean, I needed an education at some point and still do. Um, but then you're fighting that side of it. You get one, and then you take it in, and then you have to fight with the label right. on that side of it. I'll give you a little fight story, A&R fight story. This oh, is interesting. Um, Manny Lehman was a guy who was, was hired as the head of A&R at A&M Records, and this would have been back in 92, okay, back in the 1900s. And, um, <laughs> and so he thought, okay, you know, they signed me. I'm going to find them a new thing. Well, the first act that he found that he, wanted, that he brought into their office was a girl from Phoenix by the name of Cece Peniston. And he said, here's a song I want you guys to sign. And it was a demo called uh, Finally, which was her big song, you know. It was the most played song of the year, the year it came out. But it was just a demo. And on this demo, it's produced by some guys who was some of them involved. It was their first time in the studio. So Uh the track sounds like, okay, we really need to do it. Well, the guys he's pitching it to, because he was a DJ, he would worked in the clubs, and he knew music, and he knew this girl can sing, this is a hit song, we just need to get it done. They were like, no, we're not going to sign it. Because it was, you know, it didn't sound good. And so he was like, no, this is my first thing I'm bringing you, and you hired me to do this, so if you're not going to sign them, then I'm, I quit, because <laughs> this is why I'm here. So he says that to them, and they're like, okay, give us that, and they took it. And they signed her to a one-song deal with an option for an album, and they released it. And they said, if it's not a hit, you're fired. And they didn't re-record it. It went straight to number one. <laughs> And so they picked up her album option. 
one for Manny. He became <laughs> he became the man, which is why they hired him in the first place. Right. And then I got to work with her just after the single hit. They came to me to do the record, the whole album. And here I am working with this 19-year-old singer who's number one in MTV, and they're calling up, hey, we want you to come and do Yo! MTV Raps over here in right. London. And she's like... I- I don't. I can't. I don't have money to buy an airline ticket to go. And the record company hasn't given my money since we said, oh, "I'm in the studio. This isn't the way it's supposed to go." And it was very difficult for her to wrap her mind around the fact that, look, you're a star over there. You're just, you're not known here right. yet, you know. But you have to just deal with that. She's sharing a car with family members, and you yeah. know, and working at a jeans store, and has number one song in London. You know, but it was neat that he he went to bat and he won because nine times out of ten they could have submarine that record just to show oh, you yeah, who's yeah, boss. Yeah. Uh, luckily, they didn't get in its way. They put it out and, and it was a catchy enough single that it really caught on. So wow, you know, chalk yeah. one up for the A and R. But A and R is always a difficult role, even for the producer. Way. Have you dealt with A and R guys that you liked as a producer? Um, no. I was going to say, that's a tough role, too. Getting the phone call from the office going, play it for me over the phone, and then turn the hi-hat up, you yeah. know, that kind of stuff. And, and I, I'll, I'll tell you, I had a, I'll tell you a quick story. I, uh, what year was this? This would have been, it's in the Mesa location because we moved from Tempe. It would have been like 05. Okay. And I did a record for this band in a smaller label out of New York, and... I uh, did the whole record and, you know, kind of kind of Radiohead-ish, you know, mm-hmm. very cool. I, I, I mean, we worked a long time on this record and I really liked it and uh, sent it back. And the uh, I don't remember it was it was the label president or the A&R guy or maybe it was the same guy. Right. Called and said, you know, there's something about he was a young guy, young guy, something about the vocal. It just it doesn't sit right. Like okay, I, too much verb, too wet, too dry. Right. No, it just doesn't, just doesn't feel right. And I had an epiphany, and I thought I'm just going to try this, and I want to see if it works. Right. And all I did was turn on and set the key for auto tune. Mm-hmm. That's all I did. I didn't graph it out. Right. I didn't do any of that. I just set the key for it, and I just let it run. So it gave it that kind of word that we're all familiar with. But what I came to realize is guys that were under 25, they've never really heard a record that doesn't have auto-tune. And if it is, it's classic rock. Right. So I did it to the vocal. I didn't do anything to it. And I sent it back. Oh, Michael, I don't know what you did. That's exactly what we wanted. That's perfect. (laughs) Like that answers my question. That answers my, and God, I hate the world right now, but that answers my question. That's that he just, it didn't sound right to him without it. Right. It sounded somehow naked or unfinished or just not correct. Yeah. And I didn't do anything else to it. I just turned it on. That was Mm -hmm. it. And Mm -hmm. set the key. Mm -hmm. I, I was amazed by that. Well, and you know what? It changes, too. It's different labels, different styles of music, and there is always that thing, that one thing that they're looking for. Yeah. Know? Sometimes in a mixing situation, it's the SSL stereo bus compressor. Always. If you don't have it, they can tell it's not on. And they're like, Mine's this always is just on. not happening. You know? <laughs> but, I mean, it's such a classic sound. Yes. And uh, um, so it's like, it's amazing what the people who aren't doing it start to recognize. Oh, yeah. And they're like, I like the ones that have this whatever that thing is, and they need that thing, and they can't even tell you what it is. They don't know what it is. No. But, yeah. But you have to try to find it and recognize it. Yeah, mine's on all the time. That's good. <laughs> so, you know, you wear, you wear a lot of hats, and sometimes I think when you have a lot of different talents and you can do a lot of different things, that maybe that main, helps you maintain a little bit of sanity in the business as opposed to just doing one thing. But what, where, is there a spot where you find uh, the most joy or what's home most for you? Is it on the stage? Is it in the control room bringing up some young talent? Is it working with superstar established people where it's a different, because those are all very different environments. What do you find the most engaging? Is there one? Um, no. There, there, I, I, I knew that was the answer. <laughs> I was just trying to I, I mean, my, my initial instinct when you say that is the stage. You know, that's that, home. That's I, the first home. That's I, kind of where I, it I love being on stage. Yeah. I, 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 I really do. Right. Um, it, you know, I, 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 I've been very fortunate that I've, mo- well, not most, really all the bands that I've been in, as far as original bands, mm-hmm. have all been really good bands. Right. Um, I've been fortunate with that. Um, fortunate to, to play with some really good musicians. And 
um, you know, to be able to play with that level of musician that pushes you where you know you can go on stage and 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 give it at at a given notice mm-hmm. it, 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 at any moment right. is a pretty good feeling. But I do like, obviously, or I wouldn't still be doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do really like the studio experience. I mm-hmm. love honing a, a band and kind of putting things together and, you know, bringing a band in that has a certain sound and not changing their sound because I hate that. And mm-hmm. I had producers try to do that to me and those were the ones I hated. Right. But to hone what's already there and mm-hmm. to bring out the best of what's already going on. Mm-hmm. That I really, really like that. Would you consider yourself a little bit less of a gearhead than most audio engineers in the studio? Do you find that your performance side weighs heavier than your tech side? Oh yeah, way. Yeah, I, I, I love. There's a um, a quote that I pretty much live by by George Martin. Mm-hmm. You know who George Martin is, right? Yeah, I heard of him. <laughs> I think he produced the first forty albums I owned. <laughs> Something like that. He said something, and I read it once, and it's been kind of my mantra ever since. Because I'm not an engineer. I, I can't take stuff apart and put it back together. It'll be broken. Well, you're forever. not an electrical engineer. I, I'm not just, I'm not that type of a gear guy. Right. I know the way different gear sounds because right. I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different gear. Right. Um, but I'm not the engineer part of it like that. Right. And he, I read an interview with him and they asked him, well, how do you keep up with all the new gear that's coming out and, you know, pro tools and new this and new compressor. And, you know, he said, I don't, he goes, I just turn the buttons until it sounds like the way I want it to. Uh Like, that's it. That's exactly what I do. I, I have a, if I'm tracking a guitar, I know the way it's supposed to sound in my head for the track and I just start monkeying with stuff until it gets there. And I've been doing it long enough where I, I kind of know where the monkey needs to go. Right. Yeah, not a whole lot of wasted time. <laughs> yeah. Monkeying around. But at the same time, I, I'm still just monkeying around. I mean, I don't know that, you know, two and a half K at four to one. <clears throat> right. I, I don't know that that's going to do it. Mm-hmm. But I kind of monkey around with all that until I get there. Cool. Well, let me ask you another question. Uh I had you asked can ask you, me a couple. Well, we're running out of time, so I'm <laughs> going to ask you one. But um, I had asked you in an email, you know, gosh, what's uh, who's an artist you admire today, or you know, what do you what do you what do you really enjoy? And you responded by, well, all the bands I work with for different reasons, and it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, you don't want to alienate anybody. <laughs> so let's so let me, I'm going to re-ask the question in okay. a different way. Uh, besides all the bands you've ever worked with, <laughs> uh, you know, what's a record that I would find in your car? What's what's something you would you dig listening to? What's something that kind of motivates your interest in making another record, or who inspires you? Um, I I hear stuff every once in a while that that catches my ear. I, I'll be honest with you, there isn't there isn't stuff, especially on the radio, and I have my own opinion on that as to why I don't hear new stuff on the radio that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everybody has an opinion on that. Um, but I'll hear a song every once in a while that, wow, that's cool. Um, mm-hmm. There's a band called Nonpoint mm-hmm. that's out right now that great sound and record. I can't remember the name of the single, but it sounds really good. Um, I heard a band the other day. I thought they were a new band because it sounded kind of different. It was the new one from Weezer. Really oh, wow. Cool. Really mm-hmm. cool. But didn't really sound like Weezer. Right. Well, and you know, you, they, you grow up a little after a certain number of years, and your I audience is growing true. as well. And you have to—I think—you have to try but in the new suit a little. But it was—it was, it was equally as cool. Cool. Equally as cool. So, do you, do you find you spend a lot of time in your control room listening to new music, or do you primarily only listen to stuff you're working on? I only listen to stuff that I'm working on in there, mm-hmm. and um, I listen to music in the car sometimes. But honestly, mostly I listen to NPR. Right. Well, I, I found when I was uh, making records every day that I, I never listened to music when I wasn't at work. And people would always say to me, like, you must have a really mean st- stereo at home. I was like, I don't even have a stereo no. at home. Yeah. And I, what do you listen to in the car? Talk radio or yeah. something else. Just to, it's kind of a break. You have so much music. And, and I, I don't want to, especially when I'm, I'm mixing a record and when I'm tracking it, too. I don't want to really get influenced by something else. I, Interesting. I, I, I took different approaches sometimes. Uh, in fact, I tried. Remember when we had two-inch tape? 
Yeah, exactly. well, ages I, ago. I know. Well, I, would, I remember. I found that sometimes you'd be doing the mix, and it's almost like you start liking what you're hearing as opposed to finish taking it where it needs to go. Yes. And then you, the next day, you're like, "Oh man, that's just not done. I thought it was great. Why isn't it great?" You know. So Eight sometimes hours ago, this was awesome. Yeah. So what I, I developed, designed my own trick to to beat that right, and I tried this a couple times and. I didn't keep doing it, maybe because it didn't work, or maybe because we quit using two-inch tape. <laughs> but you remember how you could flip a couple channels into, like, if the whole thing's in cell wrap and play back up the record, right. that you could flip a couple tracks and record. And every time you stop or hit rewind, they go to input, which is live. Right. And so I would have a CD player playing onto those two channels. So every time I rewound, I heard a different piece of music until the song got back to the beginning and I started again. So in a sense, I took really? a 10-second complete rewash of my sonic perception That's a great of what was idea. happening. And then when I'd play again, boom, here comes mine again. It's fresh. Yeah, and it wasn't necessarily to match what was just going because the next time something else is going. But it made me kind of re-get my grip on this again. Washes you your know. head. Yeah. yeah. and uh, That's I a thought, great idea. Yeah, and I thought that was a having that opportunity to try to not to compare when you're mixing to a target, but more so keep your keep yourself kind of fresh for what you're listening to absolutely you know? I, um, I do a thing when i'm mixing when i'm down to you know like that last pass where you've pretty much got all the automation done and mm-hmm. and everything's there where you want it and i'm i'm gonna hit the last pass i usually will read a magazine while it's on the pass right to see if something either good or bad jumps out at me right and it just, it's the same thing. I kind of take, it takes me out of the head. Well, of the that's game. a cool thing to do too. Cause I've noticed very often when you're not listening is when some of the things that are wrong show up exactly. that you weren't noticing cause you were so focused on other issues. As yes. Yes. And, and, and conversely too. I mean, I, I love listening to, you know, like when a, a, a singer will be going through a vocal and they'll do something wrong mm-hmm. that it's, it's not right. It's not really wrong but it's not really right. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff because mm-hmm. I think it grabs a listener mm-hmm. and I don't think you can ever replicate it. It's just something that happens. So right. I try and look for those moments all the time. Yeah. So as a producer, you got to hang on to those. Absolutely. Man, we could go on and on between tribute bands and live shows <laughs> and our recording backgrounds and Catholic school. And yeah, we, we could get to Catholic school. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we're running out of time. So thanks so much for coming on, Michael. Otto, I totally appreciate it. It's Thank you very much. You. And thanks for whoever's listening. I appreciate it. Yeah, And this uh, podcast will be available in a few minutes at autod.com and on iTunes for download uh, shortly thereafter. So have a great night. See ya. <laughs>